Great to see you, Purpose Church. Today we're continuing our summer series, Dear Church, uh, from the book of Revelation. Pastor Eric did just a fantastic job of taking us through chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 over the last two Sundays, which are some of the most difficult chapters to understand in all of the Bible. Now, you all know I'm, um, uh, I guess I'm vice president of Pastor Eric's fan club. Sarah, his wife, would be the president of his fan club, but I'm one of the vice presidents. And I tell you, uh, Eric is 35 years old. And when I came here to pastor, uh, started here at Purpose Church, I was 36 years old. So he's a year younger than I was when I started here. And I want you to know, I could not have handled those four chapters as well as he did when I was that young. So yay, Pastor Eric. Now today we come to chapters 14, 15, and 16, and the title of today's study is Voices of Victory. Now, how do we have the victory over the, the hard things, the tribulation, uh, the pain in our life? And we're gonna talk about overcoming that pain, overcoming that tribulation with God's help uh, to get to the finish line. But before we get into today's chapters, I want to talk about uh, the future tribulation period uh, because uh, I want to do an overview of the four main positions that Christians have for this time period because that's what these chapters are uh, dealing with. And so we're going to geek out on end time stuff for just about five minutes. So if, if you're not as into that, bear with us. It's only five minutes. If you're really into end times prophecy, you're going to really geek off, uh, geek along with me, geek out uh, over the next uh, few, few minutes. But here we go. Now remember, when it comes to end times uh, positions, uh, end times beliefs, uh, we always follow something, a uh, quote that we use here a lot at Purpose Church, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. That is, in the essential things of the faith, the things that the Bible clearly teaches, the authority of God's word, Christ's death for the, on the cross for our sins, his, his resurrection, the fact that he's coming back, his second coming, is an essential. But in non-essentials liberty, exactly when he's going to come back, the order of events that are going to happen before he comes back, that is considered a non-essential. It's not that it's not important, that's why we're studying it, but on the other hand, it's something that sincere Christians can disagree on agreeably. And we can have liberty to have our own individual positions, and in all things charity, love is what makes all that work uh, together. The essential is Christ is coming back, the second coming. The non-essential are these four views that I wanna talk about right now. So we're gonna put the chart up there, and I'm gonna do this in order of, of what I think uh, is the popularity uh, of these. Uh, I think the most popular view among uh, Bible-believing Christians is, is the second one here, pre-tribulational, pre Millennialism. Okay, that that's uh, that that is where you uh, we're we're following Christ and, and and we're going on like we are right now. The next thing to happen is the rapture, when uh, uh, Christ returns and and those that follow Christ uh, join Him in heaven and and Jesus comes back and we are raptured uh, to heaven. Then we are not here for the tribulation period, such as we're talking about today. At the end of that, 
then Christ comes back with us. So the first time Christ, we're raptured, um, we go to heaven, then we come back. Um, eventually we're reunited with our resurrection bodies in heaven. But when you die, you immediately go to heaven. And then those that are with Christ in heaven come and we're raptured with them. And we are not here for the tribulation. Then Christ returns, sets up his thousand year millennial reign on earth. And then comes uh, the last judgment. Now, uh, this is my view. This is my particular view. Um, I hold it lightly because so many wonderful people hold different views. So many smart uh, people that know their Bible way better than I do hold a different view. Um, and yet this is my uh, particular view. Along with uh, many other uh, Bible teachers, people like Billy Graham or Chuck Swindoll or Tony Evans, uh, Charles Stanley and Anne Graham Lotz. Uh, now, even though I grew up in a Presbyterian church that was amillennial that we're going to see in just a moment, in high school, I read a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And it is that particular position that I just shared with you, and I became, that became my uh, conviction as well. Now, I went to a public high school, didn't go to a Christian school, went to a public high school, but I began to use this book as a witness to my friends. I remember one friend I gave it to, and he read it overnight, couldn't put it down. And the next day, he, he said to me, that book, he said, literally scared the hell out of me. And he was very open to the things of God after reading that book. Uh, whenever I had a speaking assignment in English class, I would use it to talk about Bible prophecy and about the Battle of Armageddon. I was a real Jesus freak in high school. I want you to know. Now, back to the chart once again. There's another variation on this one here, which is called the mid-tribulational position, where Christ uh, comes back, um, raptures the church in the middle of the tribulation. So this seven-year period before the thousand-year millennium, the seven-year tribulation, so three and a half years in, that's when the rapture takes place. Then the other, the second probably most popular position is post-tribulational premillennialism. Uh, this is where Christians go through the tribulation. We go through this difficult time, then Christ returns and sets up his millennial kingdom before the final judgment. And so many people have said, pray that it's pre, that is that we get out of here before the tribulation happens, but prepare for the fact that it might be post, uh, which means that we do go through the tribulation. Prepare to go through the tribulation, but pray that we won't have to and that we will be raptured before that terrible time takes place. Um, one of my predecessors here at the church, pastor here for 28 years, the legendary uh, Dr. Ted Cole, uh, I believe was a post-tribulational pre-millennialist. And then the third most popular position is amillennialism. Ah, meaning there's not a literal millennium, but it's more symbolic. We are going through the millennium right now, and we simply follow Christ, uh, serve him, spread the gospel around the world. It's symbolically Christ is ru ruling on earth through the followers of Jesus, and then he comes back and it's the final judgment. Now, if you like things simple, you would like the amillennial position because it's just simply we're following Christ and then one day he just uh, comes back. 
probably the least popular today. It was very popular in the Reformation period, back with Martin Luther and in the 1500s. It was, um, um, uh, well, I would, should say actually in the 1800s. This was uh, very popular, I'm sorry, in the 1800s, is post-millennialism. And that is a very optimistic view. It's like amillennialism, but what happens is uh, Christians go around the world preaching the gospel and the world becomes more and more followers of Christ and more and more uh, Christian around the globe until we usher in the millennium ourselves through the preaching of the gospel and then Christ returns. Now, this was popular in uh, the uh, 1800s because things seemed to be going that way. World missions was spreading the gospel all around the globe. But then at the beginning of the 20th century with World War I and then World War II, and now looking at the way things are going on in the world, very a few people are amillennialists, back to, or, or post-millennialists. Back to amillennialists, uh, Tim Keller is a famous uh, preacher that is uh, amillennial. He was uh, part of my background. He pastored a church that was a satellite church, a church plant for my home church. And then my home pastor uh, growing up, Kennedy Smart, uh, he was an amillennialist as well. And you know, it's kind of funny. Um, my dad was the lead elder in our Presbyterian church. And he just adored Kennedy Smart. No, uh, he was the head of the search committee that brought Kennedy Smart uh, to our church. And I'm telling you, I never heard my parents say ever a critical word about Kennedy Smart. He, my dad had his back and he was supporting him 100%. With one exception, only thing I ever heard is that he didn't care for the amillennial position. My, my dad and mom, uh, they liked more the position that I have today, the premillennial, pre-tribulational position. And uh, he, he just was kind of like, you know, Revelation is kind of boring when Pastor Smart preaches on it because it's basically just Jesus comes back and that's it. And my dad wanted a few more bells and whistles uh, to go with it. Now, the post-millennial position, as I mentioned, was popular in the 1800s, but it is not as popular today. One of the few people that still advocates it today was one of my professors in seminary, uh, Dr. John Jefferson Davis, and one of my profs at Gordon-Conwell near Boston. He was a post-millennialist, but there aren't very many of those. Now, uh, the overview we've been using for our entire series is the four views of the book of Revelation. Just to review them, Pastor Eric came up with this more simplified way to look at it. The historicist approach means that the book of Revelation is predicting, is prophesying all 2,000 years of church history. And as you go through Revelation, you will see the different centuries and events of church history prophesied, and it is amazing how they line up. Uh, the preterist view uh, from, the Greek, from the Latin word praetor, which means uh, past, uh, all that has been in the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled with the early church. The futurist approach, uh, which was the one I was just sharing with you, those are varieties of the futurist approach. Uh, it all has to do with the future church and the symbolic approach. Every church, the, their lessons, spiritual lessons for every Christian, for every church, for every follower of Jesus all through church history. Now, I've used the illustration before, the mountain range. How in the Old Testament, 
they would prophesy something, and one prophecy could have three different applications. One, like 70 years in the future, one with the first coming of Christ, maybe four, five, six, seven hundred years in the future, and then thousands of years of future, the far mountain range uh, would be the prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. And so really, these four views are, are somewhat uh, similar uh, to that. Um, the historicist approach is a, a prediction where Revelation is a prophecy of all the mountain ranges that would happen during the entire time of, um, of the Christian church. Uh, the preterist uh, approach would be that it's only about the near mountain range. The futurist uh, approach would be that Revelation is all about the most distant mountain range, and the symbolic approach applies to all the mountain ranges for every Christian uh, down through the last uh, 2,000 years. Now, let's apply these four views to Revelation chapters 14 through 16. What do these bowls of wrath that we're going to see? We had a couple of weeks ago, we had the trumpets that were talked about. The bowls are somewhat similar. What do these bowls represent? And then along with that, when do these events occur? The historicist approach says, in general, the seven bowls of wrath find fulfillment in the judgment upon the papacy. This was uh, most prevalent, the historicist, during the Reformation uh, period, 1500 AD, when the, the Catholic Church and the, and, the, and the Pope and the papacy uh, was very, very corrupt. And so they said that they are similar to Babylon in the book of Revelation. And so beginning with the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars and concluding yet in the future when papal power was greatly weakened. Uh, the uh, next uh, approach is the preterist approach where the judgments of these bowls are largely against Jerusalem culminating in its fall in AD 70. Though the fifth bowl touches the Roman Empire as well, probably referring to the chaotic state of affairs that prevailed after Nero's uh, suicide. And then the futurist approach. The bowls represent future global judgments that in their devastating effect are unparalleled in human history. These occur at the very end of the tribulation period, culminating in World War III or the Battle of Armageddon. This war is the last battle to be fought by mankind and it will be ended by the personal appearing of Christ as he comes to establish his millennial kingdom. And then finally, the symbolic approach, the principal distinction between the trumpets that we had a few chapters ago and the bowls is that the former are partial in their effects and serve to warn the wicked of their spiritual danger. Whereas the latter, the bowls, are complete and represent final judgment upon the unrepentant. The same event in history may serve as a trumpet judgment for one person, a mere warning, and as a bold judgment for another person, a final judgment resulting in death. Now let's look at these actual uh, three chapters. Uh, voices of victory. First of all, the voice of the 144,000. Uh, Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. 
These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. Uh, now, there is a, a broad application and then you can make it a more specific application. The broadest application is that the 144,000 represent all the followers of Christ. And all of us are called to uh, keep ourselves separate uh, from the world. Uh, we, we don't compromise with the culture around us. We don't water down uh, God's word because of the pressures of the culture around us. And for everybody that does that, in, in a sense, it's symbolically like we don't sleep with the world. Um, we don't compromise with the world. Th those are the 144,000 that are the first fruits. They're the best. They're the finest. It's not a literal number, but it's symbolically meaning all those that keep themselves pure uh, during, in the midst of an impure culture. So that's the broadest application. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to uh, the Gentile. Um, but then there's a more specific application, and that has to do with sexual morality. Uh, going back to uh, verse 4, it, it talks about specifically sexual morality. And, and so uh, that is a, a more specific application of the 144,000. Now I'm gonna sound like a grandfather now. I'm 65 years old and I've seen a lot of changes in my life and some good and some not so good. But the one that is the most stunning to me is the loss of any sense of sexual morality in our culture today. It's like a flooding river. That the, the, the banks of a river are like God's uh, standards for um, sex within marriage a biblical standard, guidance. Um, it, it's like a, a guardrail on either side of it, the banks of a river. But once a river floods, once it gets beyond its banks, there's no stopping it. It, it can go miles and miles and miles once it gets beyond the guardrails, once it gets beyond the riverbank. And we are seeing that in our culture today. Now this applies to everyone, not just those that are single. Uh, even though it says they remain virgins, uh, it applies also to those that are faithful within marriage. It's not just for those that are single and celibate. Um, for example, the Apostle Peter was, was married, and you can be uh, pure sexually within marriage. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Now, marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually Im immoral. Um, the 144,000 are those who keep their marriage vows, who stay away from pornography and, and who are careful about what they watch and what they read and what they listen to and what they think about. But then back to this verse once more, verse four. Most specifically, however, I believe it applies to those in a decadent, immoral culture who are single and are celibate and stay sexually pure 
especially in this day and age in which we live. If you are single, if you're a single adult and you are maintaining sexual purity within this culture in which we live, I believe that you are that symbolized by that 144,000. I believe there's a special honor and a special place in heaven for those of you that are single and sexually pure, uh, live a sexually moral life even though you are single. I believe this verse is especially saying that there is a tremendous honor and a tremendous blessing for those of you that maintain your uh, morality in the midst of an immoral culture. Now we come to the voices of the angels. And the first thing they say is that judgment is come. Uh, verse uh, 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Uh, for the past 200 years, historicists have seen the formation of Bible societies that are dedicated to spreading God's word around the world as the fulfillment of this verse. Uh, this fall, I'm speaking at a conference uh, for the American Bible Society. And I'm going to preach on this passage because the whole purpose of this event that I'm, I'm speaking at is to strategize how to translate, print, and circulate the Bible through the entire habitable world and in all the languages spoken on the face of the earth. And I want you to know we are so, so, so close to, to fulfilling this verse where the eternal gospel goes to every person on planet earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. And then verse seven, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Fear God, prepare for the judgment. Worship him who may declare him Lord. Worship him. Uh, say, Jesus is Lord, uh, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, fear and judgment are not popular things to pray, preach on today. But you have to preach on it if you're going to be faithful to God's word. 150,000 people in the world die every 24 hours. Every 24 hours somewhere on planet earth, 150,000 people die. And we as a church, uh, we, we as followers of Christ have to do everything we can to prepare them for that event. Hebrews 9, 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. Now, Dr. Carl Tony, uh, Pastor Lisa's husband, who teaches our Coram Deo um, Sunday school class, he recommended to Pastor Eric and to me a commentary on Revelation written by Craig S. Keener. And this commentary in Revelation has just been a tremendous help to Pastor Eric and to me uh, in preparation for this series. And here's what Craig Keener writes. Many today avoid trying to scare people into the kingdom. In a culture in revolt against authority and skeptical of threats, emphasizing God's loving invitation may be a more strategic approach. But John had no such scruples against scaring people. 
And as long as we speak the truth and are able to reason with people in a humble and gracious and loving way, there remains occasions when this approach is appropriate. A young atheist chose to consider the claims of Christ immediately rather than deferring the decision because the doctrine of hell made the stakes too high to ignore. 24 years later, that former atheist remains a committed Christian and is writing this commentary uh, today. <laughs> My goodness. Sometimes fear is a good thing for us. Sometimes talking about the judgment is a helpful thing so that we're prepared uh, for that final day. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right now where you're seated, uh, there in your living room or at your computer, uh, listening in your car later on. Just if you've never opened up your life to Christ, if you've never done that, today is the day. Don't put it off. It's such an important decision. Just right where you are, say those words out loud. Jesus is Lord. Would you say those words with me? Jesus is Lord. Open your heart, submit to him. Ask for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, thank him uh, for his death on the cross and ask him to be your Lord and your Savior and you will be saved. Uh, the next section is Babylon has fallen. In verse eight, a second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Uh, Babylon in the Bible symbolizes the world system that opposes God and oppresses Christians. Uh, it's that, that, that world system, that culture that opposes God and oppresses Christians. Today, more than 360 million Christians, 360 million Christians live in places where they experience a high level of persecution just for following Jesus. That's one out of every seven Christ followers on planet Earth. The top 10 countries today that persecute Christians are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. And what's interesting about this is that some of these countries are where Christianity is growing the fastest. Uh, now, right before Christ returns, this kind of persecution is going to be global. It's going to be, it's going to be over the whole earth uh, at, at the end times. What we're seeing in these 10 countries is going to be a, a, a around the world. Skipping down to verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Follower of Christ, be encouraged. Blessed are those who die in the Lord someday. You're gonna rest from your labor someday. You're gonna rest from the struggle that you're in someday. You're gonna be free from the pain and your deeds of following Christ and sharing Christ and serving Christ will follow you. It's the only thing 
that'll follow you uh, to heaven. And then the voice of the victors in chapter 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, Pastor Eric talked about that number 666 and the beast talked about that last Sunday, they held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Warren Wearsby writes, There is no complaint here about the way God permitted these people to suffer. It would save us a great deal of sorrow if we would acknowledge God's sovereignty in this way today? What if, what if we praise God in spite of our suffering, just like these people will do in the tribulation? Um, what, what, a, what a more fulfilling and joy-filled Christian life we would have if we just submitted to God's sovereignty, understanding that in the end, it will work out. No matter what you're going through today, in the end, God is gonna work it out for your good. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, and Paul was a man who suffered a great deal in his life, but he still writes, for our light and momentary troubles, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Um, my wife, Kimberly, is a, her favorite sports figure, I think, I think her favorite one, is Sydney McLaughlin. Uh, she is, Kimberly has followed this young lady ever since high school for years, uh, before she was a household name. Um, Kimberly has been, been following her. Uh, Sydney is an on fire follower of Jesus. Uh, she's just 22 years old, but she's already won the Olympic gold medal in Tokyo. Um, and she is the Olympic and the world record holder in the 400 meter hurdles. Now, uh, Paul talks about light and momentary troubles uh, giving us great glory. And Sydney runs for 51 seconds, sometimes 51.1, sometimes 54.4, uh, but, but she runs for 51, 51 seconds of suffering in order to achieve Olympic glory. And that's the same thing for us com compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in you and in me. These light and momentary troubles of this life are really just like running for 51 seconds and then entering into the glory of eternity and of heaven. And then the voice of fulfillment. A grievous sores are talked about in chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Uh, verse two, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Futurists see these judgments 
as uh, possibly it's directly from the hand of God or possibly it's coming from the aftermath uh, of an exchange of nuclear weapons. It's just somewhat of a description of what happens with the radioactivity in the aftermath of a nuclear exchange. Uh, the waters are turned um, uh, to blood in, in verse uh, 3 through 7. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of these waters say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and of your prophets. Uh, when God judges, the punishment fits the crime. See, these people had shed the blood of followers of Jesus. And now they were receiving the judgment that they had done to others they were receiving on themselves. When God judges, the punishment fits the crime. A pharaoh um, tried to drown the Jewish baby boys. So Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. Haman in the book of Esther planned to hang Mordecai, built gallows to hang uh, Mordecai and exterminate the Jewish people. But then he himself was hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. He himself was hanged on and his family was exterminated. Uh, these God-haters at the end of the tribulation who have shed the blood of God's holy people. These God-haters have killed God's people, so they themselves are now destroyed. And then great heat from the sun, verse eight. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with, with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. They didn't repent. Uh, but instead they curse God, but they refuse to repent and to glorify him. Rather than having these uh, things that they went through drive them to repentance, instead they curse the name of God and they refuse to repent or even to glorify uh, him. Verse 13, then I saw three impure spirits that look like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, uh, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the unholy trinity that we see here in the book of Revelation. Verse 14, they are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world, this is at the end of the tribulation now, to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. And now here is the closing challenge from Jesus in verse 15. Here's what Jesus wants to say to our church. Here's what Jesus wants to say to you and to me as a result of what we've studied here today. Look, I come like a thief. That is unexpectedly, suddenly, unexpectedly. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Let's stay awake looking for the second coming of Christ. Be alert, fixing our eyes on Jesus, serving God and serving others, uh, talking about Jesus to others, urging uh, our friends to be saved, running our race 
with all of our strength until our lives are over or until we see him in the sky. Matthew 24, verse 27, Jesus said, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 16, then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. God says at that point, it's done. Everything unjust will be made just. Every wrong will be righted. Everything broken will be fixed. It is done. And all God's family said, wherever you are, say this out loud with me. Amen and amen.